Welcome to Many Talks Podcast, talking all business, entrepreneurship, property development, finance and investment. Please note this podcast was originally recorded when the UK was still under severe restrictions in the UK as a result of COVID-19 pandemic. Paul provided an excellent, insightful interview and I hope our listeners enjoy it. Hi, uh, it's Rhys Many here, your host of Many Talks. This is season three. Um, today I'm delighted to be joined um, by a luxury real estate mogul, Paul Rothschild. Thanks for coming on, Paul. My pleasure. Um, so, former CEO of Platinum Luxury Design and Developments, it's fair to assume that you've been in the property sector yourself previously, or you still are involved in that sector? Um, yeah, I, I, I consult for the company now. I sort of uh, resigned my CEO post uh, a year and a half ago and uh, um, sort of trying to sort of wind down a little bit later on in life. But uh, uh, having uh, sort of done projects all around the world, which uh, over the last sort of 30, 30 plus years, et cetera, it's been, uh, you know, exciting times. And, um, you know, now's the time to sort of like take a little bit of back seat, but uh, you know, still actively get involved in uh, you know, sort of guiding uh, certain people and getting involved in some of their investment decisions. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, I'd like to, to start, Paul, just to ask what it was that your business done, um, and, and what you achieved through platinum luxury designs and developments. Um, well, I mean, in the early days, it uh, it, it was you know, because my original uh, background is sort of sort of banking and finance and um having sort of traveled a lot of the world um, with that um, sort of really fell into real estate uh, by accident rather than sort of uh, as a premeditated sort of career decision, <laughs> which, you know, if you, if you look around the world, it is often the case with a lot of people, you know, they, they, they'll try one or two things and then they find uh, that, uh, that, that direction that gives them that extra sort of uh, bite or desire in, in what they do. And obviously, um, you know, they end up committing, committing themselves to it. Um, you know, I mean, in the early days as, as, a, as a small business and small company, um, you know, we did like what a lot of people do was just sort of uh, try and find sort of opportunities to either uh, find land sites that one can have a planning consent on and, um, you know, sort of uh, get a gain by adding value with a planning permission to um, partners, partnering with um, developers who were looking to offload some of the, the stock because they wanted to regenerate capital. Um, so maybe sort of buying a few units from them and then basically, you know, either enhancing them or, or flipping them in the market. Um, and, uh, you know, those are a, a, a couple of easy ways in the early days to, to sort of get involved and not necessarily get um, um, overexposed with high capital investment into projects. Um, but actually gives you a foundation to understand, um, you know, the business and, and how it works. And then from there on, um, you know, the key thing is then sort of understanding that uh, you need to really sort of embrace putting together quality people around you because um, one of the biggest problems um, in, the, in the real estate industry is that everybody talks a good game, but in reality, very few deliver it. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's very important to, you know, get yourself involved with, you know, quality QSs, um, get good connections with us, um, agents, um, put a good design and architectural team around you, etc. cetera. Um, just if, if, if anything, when you're looking at 
projects is is to actually sort of get somebody else's opinion on something because sometimes they will see that you're a little bit too eager with something and and yeah. gung-ho thinking you're going to make a fortune um, but what they will actually do is add some some value to the, the thought process and maybe you know get you to look at something in a different way um, and that sort of also minimized risks in the early days because if you don't have a, a long-term track record or experience in the industry it's always pays to to get some sort of professional input um, and you know and and basically what happened was um started off looking for niche um areas um and one of the <laughs> uh, the first things we got involved in was doing all of the projects that nobody else wanted to touch which was uh, grade two listed and grade one listed buildings um they're a, they're a nightmare for planning um they're um uh, they take forever to get planning consents um, uh, but also there's less competition because everybody else knows that that's the, that's the core. So, yeah. you know, you, it's, it's quite easy to sort of establish yourself in, in that particular area. Um, so a lot of initial projects we did were sort of regenerating and, and we took great pride in sort of reproducing, uh, you know, uh, 16th, 17th, 18th century uh, Cornice work in buildings and restoring them to their former sort of um, glory, um, painstaking. Um, but if you picked the right opportunities, it was, um, you know, uh, a successful sort of a margin that you could achieve on things that in, in those days uh, you couldn't achieve on a normal um, property development. Mm. Um, and then and then we also then started looking at um, uh, added value in respect of um, planning gain, which was looking at sites that would have a value for, you know, could be a, a youth hostel, could be... A, um, uh, um, just trying to give you some examples um, could be uh, uh, garages on uh, very green uh, back roads that basically had nothing around them um, could be um, you know commercial sites that were on the edge of um, the cross between sort of commercial and residential areas that would have fairly low commercial values but if you could actually get a planning consent to change those into residential would uh, dramatically improve the value of those sites um, so we're always looking at um, um, a different angle is probably the best way to look, look to how to add value um, and then basically just realize that the the real um, big capital was in the luxury end of the market um, and then probably for the last 20 years have just specialized in doing extremely um, high-end projects which uh, are not in mass not in volume um, but have a fairly niche uh, uh, end purchaser or user for the property that's prepared to pay a premium for them um, and you know the margins in that sector are obviously um, considerably higher than the normal building sector. Yeah, makes sense. What What would you say was like an early success achieved um, that made you think, you know, what we're going down the the, the right road? Um, I think yeah, funny. I, I suppose two two answers to that question. I think the first one was. Um, we picked up a development site that actually was, in fact, um, uh, what they used to call them in the old days. Um, it was a social club. That's the word for it. Yeah. Um, it was a social club that had a massive car park and basically had a load of land around it and had fairly little revenue as a commercial business. 
Um, but the site location was ideal and was surrounded by, um, um, you know, a nice sort of tree lines and everything else. Um, and um, we sort of had a discussion with uh, the, the local planners and said, um, you know, we think this would be an ideal, you know, sort of luxury apartment development project. Um, and the minute that we sort of had secured a contract on there to, to explore the avenue of getting uh, planning consent uh, was the fact that every single other builder in, in the air, and I think we probably had 20 offers for the site in the space of three months, and we hadn't even secured a planning uh, consent on it. And it was not uh, fairly uncertain as to whether we would get one. Um, but it also showed me that, um, you know, that if there were 20 other developers out there that were quite happy to buy the site from us, it shows you the fact that they actually walk past all these opportunities on a daily basis. Um, so the first thing it really taught me was that, um, you know, just because you think um, everybody else has had a look at something, it doesn't mean that they've actually looked at it with the same set of eyes and the same uh, end concept that you, you're going to bring to the project. Um, and, you know, we made a significant gain on the on the planning consent and sold it um, to, to um, other property developers. Um, and then I suppose uh, going back to 2012 was um, uh, was uh, really sort of a highlight where um, we ended up basically picking up some um, land sites in Switzerland, as an example, um, and ended up developing um, some luxury chalets, which at the time, um, were really sort of large luxury family homes for individuals. Mm. Um, but we actually got one of the first um, ever um, great uh, five-star hotel ratings on a, on a, on a chalet, um, which actually doubled the value of it um, in the marketplace just by actually securing that um, and um, ended up selling it to quite a wealthy um, uh, family office who... Um, we're, we're very happy as it's uh, just, I think, being voted number one ski chalet in the world. So, um, you know, but uh, that was a fairly lengthy project and a very unusual one. So two extreme stories there of ways in which you can, you know, sort of generate substantial capital gains on on a on a project outside of the, the normal development route. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good achievement as well. Interesting. Um, just just. What I'm picking up, Paul, is that you, you know, you've traveled quite a bit. You've done stuff in, in various different countries, Switzerland, yeah. Spain. Um, you've been involved in Asia, USA, yeah. um, the, the UAE. What's you, the, the international experience of doing businesses in business in them countries? Do you think that's helped you as a businessman later on in life? Yeah, definitely so. Yeah, because I think um, what it's given you is appreciation for um, understanding the, <coughs> yeah, sorry, uh, for understanding your potential customer. Um, and, and people are very different in the way that they think, the, the way that they prioritize, the way, the way that they visualize things. Um, and having sort of had a fairly wide exposure to different cultures. Um, really emphasizes that because, um, you know, the way that uh, the Arabs will look at a project, the way that Americans will, or people in, in Switzerland or in Europe is completely different. Um, and if you don't um, have that at the forefront of your mind when you're looking at the design for a project, um, you'll completely miss the market. You think yeah. you've got a great idea, you've done a fantastic design, 
but the, the particular market that you're appealing to just doesn't don't see it the same way that you do. Um, and that's obviously going to have a dramatic effect as to what the end value of your project is likely to realize. Um, so the one thing that has taught me is, is always basically from the beginning is um, have a very good understanding as to who the end buyer for your project is going to be, what their backgrounds, what their priorities are going to be, um, what their hot buttons are likely to be, and make sure that whatever you're building into that project, that you can tick those boxes so that when they actually come across and look at it, it, it yeah. ticks the boxes straight away. So it's uh, you're going to get a, a, a much higher success rate in, in, in selling something quickly. Makes sense, makes sense. And obviously, I'm, I'm in property myself. Um, okay. And as you said, it's, it's a passion that I've got property. I, I love property myself. I love making money from property. I love yeah. helping investors in property. You mentioned the luxury end of the property market. Um, I've, I've not been in that side of, of that market. Could you just okay. elaborate a little bit on what you've done in, in that sector for our listeners and for myself? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, we've, we've had a fantastic couple of, uh, I mean, I would say the last five years has just been phenomenal. I mean, we've just, uh, as I started off, we've just been uh, voted as the, uh, the number one designer and developer for the best chalet in the world. Um, we've just been voted the number one design and developer for uh, um, a beachfront estate in um, Turks and Caicos in the, uh, the Americas. Uh, we've got a project in Miami that was voted the one design project there. Um, we've also got uh, a couple of other projects that have all been listed for awards. Um, I think, you know, the, what's, what's taking us to that point is um, just the attention to detail and the extra effort and, and the extra time that we put in in upfront on a project um, you know the normal development world is involved in trying to secure a, a land or a property um, trying to get a consent as quickly as possible trying to get the designs done as quickly as possible trying to build it as quickly as possible trying to sell it as quickly as possible because there's a mentality that you know the the, the quicker you turn your capital around the more money you will make um, and if you're you're talking about the general market, it's it's true to a degree. In the luxury um, sector, um, it's about differentiating your product from everything else that actually gives it the added value. So if I'm going to build for country home estates in Wentworth, as an example, um, you know, if uh, somebody basically goes on the internet and sees that there's four estates, they're all 10,000 square feet uh, properties and uh, one acre plots, um, the average person's going to basically say, well, the value of those should be give or take more or less the same. Um, in reality, is one of those might sell for three million, the other one might sell for four, and the other one will sell for five. But in essence, they're more or less the same piece of real estate. But one will have had a little bit more investment into it, into detail and design and time. And somebody as a purchaser will have given that in the perceived additional value. Is it really worth an extra two million? Yes or no. If somebody wants something individual, it is. Yeah. If somebody just is just looking at the square footage and the and the and the and the the, the real uh, land area around it, it's not going to be worth an extra two million. So it's about perception, but also um, creating that product that that one person that is willing to pay that extra two million for yeah. is happy to do. 
Um, and that's what, you know, um, we didn't start off like this, um, you know, very much like you, you said, you know, you, the, the starting point is always somewhere in the real estate world and then you develop a passion for it and then you go off in one direction or you find your little niche. Um, and, you know, the niche that we found in the luxury market was that, you know, um, we will buy a piece of land and maybe hold it for two years and do nothing with it. Because in that two-year period, we're just looking at the design of the project, um, how we can add value, how we can make it special. Um, we design 100% of everything before we put the spade in the ground. Um, uh, because we don't basically, once we start construction on a project, we don't vary the designs. We don't, uh, we don't change anything. We don't have any additional costs. Um, but to do that, um, we need to basically um, uh, spend the additional time up front. Yeah. And what we find is that, yes, that costs you in, in time or additional money for holding land that you're not turning around um, slightly more, but the end product ends up being considerably different and better and more individual. Um, and that's probably what um, the main uh, differentiator we've had in our you know, unique selling proposition to the market has been for the last sort of five, 10 years. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. Talking about going back to, to international business, how, how do you think Brexit's going to affect um, the property market as as a whole? At home, uh, well, actually, I did. Um, I got invited to do an article for one of the finance magazines uh, fairly recently, and um, you know, I I think the the UK market. Um, you know, it's always been a solid property market, um, mainly driven by foreign investment and not actually local home investment. Um, you know, especially if you start looking at the the, the prime luxury centre uh, um, areas like centre of London and obviously other areas now that have um, developed. Um, you know, even Manchester and Liverpool now has. Um, you know, the prices of in those particular areas have dramatically increased over the last years because uh, they've done waterside projects and developments, um, which people may have never taken the risk for previously. But over the last, uh, you know, sort of five, 10 years, um, more and more projects in those areas have, have, have come about. Um, I think, um, you know, the Brexit needs to finalise itself because I think one of the risks that people take at this moment in time is really the, the actions from the government, which um, you and I will not have any influence over, um, <laughs> um, but it will, um, it will basically either attract or deter, um, you know, foreign investment, and it will also uh, attract or deter, deter homegrown risk investments, because, you know, if you're a, a UK property developer, um, thinking, well, I'm going to go gung-ho in the luxury uh, uh, market. Um, well, that um, is going to work if people continue earning, um, they're not paying excessive taxes, and the economy's still booming, um, and then they'll, they'll decide to upgrade where they're living into the next tier of uh, property values. But the minute people feel that they're being overtaxed or it becomes a lot harder for them to, to grow their capital, um, then, you know, the first thing that happens is they tend to reel in their sort of investment or their spend. And of course, then the luxury end of the market is always the first to, the first to fall and the first to rise. Um, so that's one sector um, from the homegrown, but also the fact is that if it doesn't become an attractive centre for foreign investment, 
um, then you know the, the 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 gains that have been made in central London will not continue at the same rate that they have been over the last sort of you know 10 12 15 years mm. um, so I think there's and there's a you know there's there's enough capital on the sidelines that is waiting to see the outcome of that um, but I think we're still in early days um, you know the UK still arguing with the EU over uh, Northern Ireland protocol uh, financial um, equivalents for the for, for, for the banking finance world um, import and export duties etc and um, you know all of that I think the dust needs to settle but it needs to get to some conclusion where people feel okay the path forward has um, yeah. you know clarified itself and then basically investment will flow one way or the other so um, I think we're in that sort of middle limbo stage where people are, are waiting for the outcome um, but it's still not really clear and good old Boris does have a tendency of going from one way to the other quite regularly so that doesn't actually add a lot of confidence in the marketplace and um, may may put more capital on the side until um, you know sort of that clarity develops yeah um, you know and obviously COVID is another thing that um, you know unfortunately is um, um, is still with us um, I mean you know, I think if you've looked at the the, the, the recent stats um, you know, Europe is um, starting to, to grow again. I think the infection rate in the UK is, is, is rising um, at a high level. And um, luckily, the, the hospitalization and the death rate, which are the two key things, because I think, um, I think the world can, can tolerate rising um, COVID infection rates. Yeah. It's, it's when we get to the point that we, we start having too many people in hospital and too many people dying, that then the problems really are, uh, are insurmountable. Um, so I think, you know, um, uh, Austria's gone into lockdown. Germany's probably going to vote on going into a lockdown in the next week or two. Um, although at the moment uh, they're staying off, but they're looking at opposing restrictions. France is getting, um, uh, the numbers are going up dramatically there. And, and, you know, parts of the rest of Europe will follow, obviously. Um, but I think the one thing that has come out of COVID is, um, is a lot of people have, have started to reevaluate their own priorities. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm sure, Reese, you've probably done it yourself, and, and I surely, surely have. And um, I, I think actually talking to a couple of the guys in our um, uh, family office investment team and, and uh, at PLDD on the real estate side, um, they've, they've both indicated that, you know, the number of uh, or the percentage changed in inquiries where people have don't want to go back into um, congested city centres and, and uh, are looking for um, real estate opportunities with um, more land and more external areas um, has driven a change in the market um, and also made people think, you know, um, especially in the holiday market where, you know, the typical second home market has always been, you know, if I, if I like going to Spain or I like going to the States or whatever, maybe I'll go and buy an apartment there. And then people are thinking, well, actually, I, I live close to work. I'm in a, uh, maybe in the center of a big city, whether it be London, whether it be Paris, whether it be New York, whether it be uh, Munich, wherever. Um, and, you know, lockdown was terrible for a lot of people that were in uh, places that really had no green out, outdoor space and were basically concrete jungles that they basically got confined to. And I mean, it was, you know, okay, it might have been called a luxury prison um, because yeah. you had a you had a nice home, but in essence, uh, you couldn't go out anywhere and do anything. Um, and then people said, well, uh, 
can I go to my holiday home? And they thought, well, Jesus Christ, I've got an apartment as a holiday home. So, I mean, that's going to be worse prison than I'm already in. Um, so what's definitely seen a dramatic changes in the holiday home market where people are going, well, actually, I, I wouldn't mind a, a little terraced house that's got a garden or uh, a nice little finca in the countryside in Spain with a, in a massive uh, amount of land or outside London, as an example, you know, I'd like to have something in, in a more rural area. Um, and that, I think, um, you know, if you if you talk to a lot of the, um, you know, the top agents around, they'll say, you know, that was a big driving factor in the change in 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 types of inquiries that people have got. Um, and also, you know, a lot of people have looked at it and thought, well, actually, I can work from home two, three days a week. I didn't mind it. Others will go. I hated it. Um, and that will also drive um, changes in demand for. Um, office space in certain areas will, will, will go down, in other areas will go up. Um, people will think, well, maybe my next, my next um, uh, property move will be, I need somewhere a little bit more space because I wouldn't mind having a, a bigger home office if I'm, if I'm going to spend a bit more time. So that, that, I think those changes are, are dramatically um, being driven in the market. And I think that not all of them will be here to stay at the same level, but I think a percentage of them will stay for a period of time because people have reevaluated what exactly what's important to them. Yeah, definitely. And as you said, we all have everybody from from everybody that I've spoke to um, has you know looked and learned something from the lockdown and and and, and what happened. Businesses have had to change. Everybody's changed to a degree. Yeah, uh, especially the way that we look at things as well. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and prioritise, you know, I mean, certain people that were, you know, that I know, and I'm sure, Reese, you, that you know, I mean, you know, they may have had workers number one on their priority list and family might have been two and, and other things, etc. And, you know, they've actually reversed those priority lists and, and you, know, you can see in people's attitudes and how they spend their time now, um, which I think is good, you know, because sometimes we need a you know, you need to walk into a brick wall to realise that there's a brick wall in front of you. Yeah. Maybe you actually want to walk around it and not straight into it, you know, so. Good way of putting it. I, I like that one. There's, <laughs> it was a very big brick wall that a lot of us walked into, but yeah. you know, we all we all learned something and we all, it was like a good reset button to actually yeah. be yeah. thankful for, for what you've yeah. got um, yeah. and, and who's around you, really. On, Paul, on more of a personal level, uh, yeah. Do you have any, like, a, a lot of people have started this and uh, as a high-end entrepreneur and property expert, you've probably done it a lot longer, but a routine or set of habits that's helped you maintain being at that level throughout your career? Um, I, th I think you need to, um, you need to, you, you need to be highly disciplined, highly organized and highly prioritized. Um, and um, I think whatever business you go into, um, you know, I've, I've got some very good friends and, and colleagues in all different sectors. And, and I think, you know, chatting around the dinner table with a lot of them, um, the guys that seem to, you know, do extremely well and stay at the top of their game for, for much longer periods than others uh, are fairly routine driven. You know, they are, they're, they're creatures of habit. Uh, you know, for me, one of the things I do is, you know, I have a fantastic night's sleep and that is... You know, I go through my uh, action list every night of what I need to do the following day, prioritize it, how much time I'm going to spend on things. And the minute my head touches that pillow, I don't need to think about what's happening tomorrow. Um, that's all because it's already been pre-planned out. Um, and I think, um, you know, you've also got to get a, a, a happy personal 
family and health balance, which I think some people tend to um, uh, miss, you know. Um, you, you're not going to be uh, a fantastic performer at work if you've got health issues. So make time for whatever hobbies you have, whether it be sport, you know, playing golf or tennis or going to the gym or whatever it is that, um, you know, that drives you. Uh, you know, put it in your diary, um, time with your family, et cetera. And, and um, you know, and, and also reflection time, reading time, relaxation time, you know, almost make all of those things as part of your normal diary planning. Um, but the one thing I learned early on when I started off was when I didn't do those things, um, it's so easy to over-prioritize work and, and end up doing 14, 16, 18 hours a day, days and then wondering why you didn't actually spend enough time with your friends and your family or didn't go to the gym when you should have done, et cetera, whatever. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a habit that we develop. But if you, if you start off with a fairly disciplined routine and plan, uh, plan your, your, your week and your months in advance, et cetera, and, and, and stick to it and incorporate all your personal things as well, then um, that 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 life work balance that magic phrase that everybody says is is much easier to achieve. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, obviously, you you retired um, to a degree now from corporate life, so being yeah. in the office every day. But you still seem like you've got a lot going on. Um, does that motivate you every day? Is is that why you haven't fully? Um, yeah, I think. It's, it's difficult, you know, I think, you know, if, you, if you've been active um, in the corporate world or in business world, um, or as an entrepreneur, um, you know, I think the, the thing that tends to drive successful people is mental stimulus and challenge, you know. Um, and I think, you know, it's a good way to, to, to wind down, which is basically is maybe sort of scale down the sort of roles and involvements that you have. Mm. Um, but actively get involved on um, a consultancy basis. So, you know, uh, I lived out in the UAE for a few years and um, during that time, uh, you know, was uh, fortunate enough to make some good connections. So I do a lot of consultancy for the government out there. Um, lived out in the Caribbean and um, still have contacts over there. So, so still um, do some work with some of the companies that um, are out there and obviously PLDD, which is a big one for the last few years and our own sort of family investment office, um, we do a lot. So. I keep my hand in with more of a, a sort of consultancy advisory role, um, which is uh, but understanding those businesses because you've been involved in them. So yeah. it, uh, it makes the process a lot easier rather than um, I think the, the world is uh, oversaturated with too many advisors and consultants that have never actually run companies and businesses. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure uh, if I would actually spend my money on, uh, on many of those, but uh, but it's always good that, you know, the people that have lived and breathed, um, you know, whatever business you're in, um, to bounce ideas off is, um, I think it's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great stimulus for, for people in the business because they get a different perspective. Um, and it's great for you if you're looking to not, you know, sort of spend so many hours actively involved to, to, to keep a hand in, basically, you know. Great. Um, and just before we finish up, Paul, because I appreciate your time, and okay. um, I see that, you know, some of the charities that you, you work with are from like um, a children's education yeah. standpoint. Is, is there a particular story behind there or a passion? Um, well, there is a story actually behind it, but um, uh, it's quite a long one and, and, a, and a tragic one because um, it was a very good friend of mine that um, um, I grew up with 
who um, had um, a son who had a lot of um, issues, I think, early on in life with learning disabilities that weren't picked up, et cetera, and, and, and caused a, a lot of major issues for him. And, um, and over the years, I suppose, um, I, I think in comparison to a lot of my friends, I've sort of done the complete opposite, which is, you know, most of them got married and by the time they were sort of 20, 21, 23 were on their first child. And by the time they were, you know, 26, 27, had either had two or three children. And um, most of my life was probably more driven by business and entrepreneurship. So uh, I started my family off quite late in life. Um, um, but what it did actually do was actually give me a connection to a, lo a lot of uh, the children of my sort of friends and family. Um, and um, it's, it's an area that, um, you know, during tra traveling and especially when I spent time out in the Caribbean and in different parts of uh, the UAE and in Europe as well, um, has always been a, a fundamental um, interest of mine in that, um, you know, whatever happens to this planet, it's um, what we introduce into the mindset of our children today that's going to make the difference tomorrow. And, um, you know, the education process, I think, um, over the last four decades has not really evolved um, the way it should have done um, in that, you know, we're trying to, I suppose, make too many sort of, um, you know, square pegs out of round holes in that, um, you know, we've, we've got this drive to pop the children through um, normal education process, let's send to college, let's send to university. And of course, a lot of the education establishments basically have a, a, a task on their hands, which is how do we get all of these people to, um, you know, get the best of themselves and perform. Um, and, you know, we'll grow up, um, you know, probably a little bit older than you, Reese, but, um, you know, when I grew up, basically, we were still at the end of coming into the, the workplace without a phone, without a computer, without a laptop. Um, you know, the, 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 the brick phone was just about being introduced uh, at the time that I was at university. So, um, and at that particular time, it was still the mindset that you had a career that was going to be, if you could find a, a right career and you get yourself into it, it's going to last the whole of your working life. Yeah. And everybody wanted to be a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, a, you know, et cetera. Um, and you looked at careers as a 40-year, basically, project. Um, but if you look at the last 20 years, um, the career lifespan for most people in, in jobs has deteriorated to maybe 20 years to 10 years. And we're now at the, the, the fact that technology has basically driven so many um, very fast changes that whatever you te you're teaching your child today will be totally irrelevant in five or six years' time. So that instead of actually um, the introducing the traditional basically education process to children, we need to actually teach them life skills to think about the box and actually think very laterally because we don't know what skill set they're going to need in, in 10 years time or 15 years time. Um, and, you know, technology, you know, we won't have uh, people working in the banking sector anymore. It will be fully automated. The investment sector exactly the same. You know, you, you'll go, you, you won't go and see a doctor. You'll basically go in, there'll be a machine that will scan you and will give you a recommendation as to what your treatment is, or maybe the operation will be done by a robot. Um, so a lot of things that we think today are great things to be educated in 
if you're talking to a five-year-old, we're talking about 15, 16, 17 years before it's going to, he's going to actually need to use those skills. And unless we actually for that now, the future for, for children, there's going to be a, an awful lot of social unrest because there'll be a lot of people coming out of education without jobs um, and without career prospects because they just won't exist. And um, so to me, I think it's an element that um, is, you know, I think investing in the future of education and children is, is you know, something very dear to me. And that's what we do as a, as a hobby with, uh, you know, the charitable uh, foundation work that we do. Right. I mean, that's a, it's great. And I, and I agree, you know, it is, you know, the education system doesn't really um, push you to be an entrepreneur or it's more down the career progression, as you said, you know, go get a job. But, you know, in five, well, 10, 15 years of them jobs going to be available that, um, you know, teachers are, are pushing kids to believe the right thing to do. Um, it's, it's a tough one, and I think we could sit and talk yeah. about it all, all day. So it's a, it's a very, a very difficult subject as well. So it's not, uh, it's yeah. not a five-minute job for sure. No, and um, you know, my my little daughter's just started school, so oh. it, she she enjoys it. Is is the main thing, and you know, at, at that age of a five-year-old, I think is it, to me, it's more important that she mixes with people and understands how how to communicate. Um, social you know, skills and communication is, is paramount yeah I think that's sure. you know that's that's the crucial part of growing up once yeah. you can communicate and you can understand um, what people need and you can talk to people in the right way and add value um, you, you, you should you should be okay in in life uh, the rest of it is just a process I suppose that that one has to go through at the moment correct yeah exactly but Paul Really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure um, chatting with yourself. Nice to talk to you, Reese. And yeah. uh, I hope uh, you don't get snow in uh, London that's <laughs> forecasted next week. We're, we're getting close. It's cold enough for snow, to be honest with you. Yeah, um, I, think, I think hopefully it should just hit the north of the UK, but uh, you, but you never know. The, the wind is going to always bring it down. But uh, yeah. but there we go. But anyway, thank, thank you for the opportunity to have a chat with you, Reese, and uh, no wish problem. you and uh, and Thank you very much. Cheers, Paul. Thank you. Bye-bye. So for now, what I want to do is thank you for listening. Subscribe, leave a review. Look forward to speaking to you on the next podcast with some exciting guests coming our way.